and the music that um, many of us will have heard coming in was all you too. Is that right? Yeah, not you too. Not but all you <laughs> as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we didn't sound like you too. We should talk about how you actually got to this point in your career, the early part of actually finding your way and your feet in, in music. It's quite a wonderful little story of how you actually got going. Perhaps you could tell us how you discovered music. Ooh, that's a long... Uh, well, the short version is I started buying for video game magazines when I was very young, like 13, which is very weird. Mm. And I made some money doing that as a 13-year-old and bought a synthesizer and a tape machine, tape four-track, and started just making music in my bedroom. And I did a record when I was 16 of this music. Called? Bedroom, which was like weird, kind of tapey, avant-garde electronic music. And then through that, uh, I, I got heard by a director who's in his room somewhere. Paul is somewhere. He's probably not going to... Exactly. I can't see anything here anyway. See. Oh, I, I, there's Paul. Paul gave me my first job when I was 17, still at school. And um, I was, would do it after my homework and would write the music for Paul's documentaries and not really know what I was doing. And then Paul got more documentaries and, do you want to do it again? So I was like, yeah, sure. And then that kept happening. And then I finished school and I took a year off to work out whether this music thing would work out, which I'm still on, which is my favourite thing. I'm still on my year out from school. And um, I do actually still have dreams about that occasionally. I have had dreams. I wake up and someone goes, well, you've got to go to university now. I'm like, no! Like, I, I don't need to anymore. But it, it's pretty extraordinary to have been able to do that at such a young age. I'm sure, I mean, there are, the world is full of 16-year-old wannabe composers who are desperate to actually... I mean, they, they do compose in their bedrooms, but it doesn't usually go much further than that. But to actually work on projects at that age, extraordinary. Yeah, I think I was super lucky. There was a whole kind of complex of, like, technology. The way people looked at TV music at that time was very dismissive, and I think... People always used to ask me, are you going to do, you know, do you ever do any proper music? And I really cared about doing my music. I cared what it was for. I just always wanted to make really good music. And so TV was just a really cool device to just, just experiment to make weird things. And I think everyone working, not everyone, but a lot of people working in TV at that point didn't have the same passion for it. So, you know... I was just kind of indulging my own passion for music and somehow finding a way of getting like, paid to explore things and have projects that would send me down weird paths. Like Paul's third film, I think it was, was Frank Skinner going to do a film on Elvis Presley, going to visit like Elvis's kind of backstory in Vegas. And Paul was like, you can write Elvis songs, right? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I didn't know what I was doing. And then I just would quickly work out how I could do that. And I think there was also another thing at that time which was interesting, was technology was not as advanced as it is now, in terms of now you have so many sample sets for the boring, nerdy composers here, that you can kind of create stuff straight away and it sounds good enough. Whereas in those days you didn't really have that, so you had to work a lot harder. To what, make what did you have? You'd have a sample that have a certain amount of memory... I started off on a four-track with cassettes, so things like tapis, like the first few scores I did were all on four-track, no sequence, I played in live. I would loop things on a mini-disc recorder that I could just literally pause and then do a loop on 
which is like the world's worst, don't do drum loops on the media's recorder, but weird <laughs> other things. And as a result, you have this stuff that doesn't really necessarily work as well as things do now, but then it forced you to work harder to make things interesting. And doing this talk has been, in, it's been fascinating because I've gone through a lot of old, you know, a few old clips. I was like, shit, these are way better than what I'm doing now. <laughs> I've totally lost it. <laughs> well, I, I think we might prove that not the case. We, the first uh, clips we are going to see is a montage of some of your television work. Yeah. And there's quite a range of things in, in, in here. I guess you take every project on its own merits, but is, is that really ha- how it works? You, you're just literally coming, coming in with a completely fresh idea. Well, I was really lucky. I worked with really good people early on, like a bunch of whom are here. There's three people in this room called Paul Wilmshurst, uh, Nick Murphy and Ian Duncan, who all had a big effect on me early on. Um, and they all encouraged me to be experimental. They didn't say copy the temp. They didn't say make it sound like whatever the cool film was. Or It's like, just go and do your own thing. And um, I think there was a period in the 90s where TV was really... I don't want to say, hey, it was great in the 90s, like I do too much, but... <laughs> There, there was a very great period in TV where a very different time in TV there were like four channels maybe the fifth one had launched and TV was kind of run by companies that would only get more money or more work if they made really good shows and then they had this whole thing called the Terms of Trade Agreement it's very boring but it basically involves independent production companies becoming owners of their work which is in theory great but it just meant venture capitalists poured in and just saw TV as content and like, how can we churn as much money out of these shows? You know, I can make 20 house shows. Or, what, you know, if you're making a one-off documentary about, um, uh, I'm thinking about a guy playing uh, with dice, um, you'll see that in a tick. And, uh, you know, or you can make, that's a great film, but it's only been shown once, or you can make 10 films about someone looking at a fridge. It's like they probably make the fridge one these days because it's just cheap. That's the thing I feel I was very lucky to be at that moment in TV. Just to be clear, you wrote a piece for choir that they could perform whilst marching down a road followed by a church being pulled by a lorry. Yeah. Well, that, that was, I, I think, I got known for doing, like, not stupid things, but like, I was the go-to guy if you wanted a kind of... I would always see how far we could push being... Like, I don't want to say crazy, but, yeah, kind of like, I always think you can do so much with TV, any, you can do so much with anything, and it's so much, it's so similar. And that was a show that was uh, made by Ian Duncan's company called Windfall. And they were always great at just saying, right, let's try and do this differently, and let's come up with some crazy idea. And that was actually Carlo, who was the series producer, was like, let's write a song and get them to sing it in front. And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course, Carlo, like... Uh, get on that and I'm carrying on doing the music to show that's about moving massive buildings on the back of lorries and things and then he was like how's that song going I'm like yeah, yeah it's going great and then like a couple of weeks later he's like okay so we're ready for the song I was like we're actually doing that song shit alright is that really going to happen and so yeah we just kind of cobbled together this thing they recorded that's the choir singing it I cobbled together like a track behind it and um and then that became quite a big deal on that show, and we started doing songs for like every every episode. And people would either think they're brilliant, or they'd be like, "What the hell is this crap?" I'm watching this. You know, it's like a house moving show. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really insane show. 
It's a sort of Discovery-esque show. But then you'd have these songs at the end. And we had, you know, lots of later episodes would have songs about people moving trains, a big hole in Sweden. <laughs> you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of songs. And I just, I just, I kind of enjoyed the sort of insanity of doing that. And that, that keep a peep show at the end. I mean, that's yeah. no more than, what, two, three seconds. But I, how easy are those to actually I, I, peep, peep show I got very lucky with, I think. And, and that's still, if anyone asks me what I've done, no one knows anything I've done. Apart from they say, is that the film National Kutcher in? No. Oh, and, yeah. um, I, but they know Peep Show. So I just go... And then people know what that is. And it's weird. It's kind of... you Because know, I originally wrote a theme for Peep Show for the first series that that's based on. But then the first series did really, really badly. And they were going to can it. And they sort of only brought it back very reluctantly, Channel 4. And a week before the second one went to transmission, Kevin Ligo banged into the edit suite said, you need to change the opening, change the music, change the title sequence. It needs to appeal to women aged 18 to 30, apparently. So my bizarre theme tune got binned, um, and they put on an indie track and put more photos of girls in the opening. Um, and I was really, really upset about that for a long time. But my little noise is still in there. Yeah. So I'm kind of, you know, I feel like, I kind of, that's a little thing. I love Peep Show, and I'm a massive fan, and so I watch it. And I'm not that involved with the show, but I'll be like, oh, that was great. Oh, look, there's my name at the end. It's really cool. It's like, it's, it's a very odd experience watching a show you really love. And then you're like, hey, look, my name's on the end as well. Yeah. Now, you, you were talking about when you first started in your bedroom with all the uh, relatively low technology that you had. But with most of those, are we talking about high technology and live musicians? No. Peep show, like, peep show noises were recorded in a well in Mallorca on a family holiday. Yeah. Um, I had a really good acoustic, and I used to just record things with a little mini-disc. Lots of plugs for mini-discs tonight. Um, record, I used to go around recording noises everywhere and then resample them up. Uh, the Dice World thing was like one of the first things I did, and I didn't even really have... I only had one synthesizer. I don't think... I, no, I still had a sampler then, but didn't have much memory, so that would be using guitar pedals. And it sounds kind of cool now. Like, like, like oh, I should do that again. Um... Edwardian Country House was a proper... That was my first time of using an orchestra. Um, and that was a very big deal uh, and a big turning point for me uh, because previously I'd sort of done everything in my bedroom and I tracked down this great guy called Andrew Skeet, who is here as well. Yeah, round of applause for Andrew Skeet. Let's hear for Andrew Skeet. Good on. Anyway, Andrew and me have worked together ever since then, which is 2002, so that's 15-year anniversary coming up next year, Andrew. Uh, and he's amazing, uh, really important collaborator in helping facilitate what I want to do half the time. So, and that that relationship has been fascinating because we we've just gone through so much. And at the beginning, I had no idea what I was doing, and now I have a much better idea, having done it for so long. But actually, the wooden country house stuff is really because I didn't know what I was doing. I was writing stuff that was so basic, like here's a chord, here's a melody. And like we'll have this on strings, and now I will really pull stuff apart a lot more. But that's kind of probably better than a lot of stuff I'm doing now. It it's more instinctive. Yeah, and and I, I, that was a big show for me. That really like changed my life because I realised <coughs> I should give everything. I don't think I can do a go because I might not. You never. There's always something good in trying to do something and failing rather than not trying to do something because you're scared. And then you sort of find out that maybe actually, you know what. I could do that. And I think mine for orchestra is one of those things where 
it feels incredibly scary, but it's actually not that hard to do in a small way. To master is kind of impossible in the biggest puzzle of all time. But it's another tool. It's another facilitation of what you want to create musically. But in television, you very rarely get that an orchestra. I mean, you do. No, I went. I mean, with that, I spent all the budget. I mean, that's the other thing. I would do shows where I really. I just wanted to make music the whole time, so I wasn't really interested in like making loads of money. I was interested in how can I make a cool piece of music. So I'd always try and approach every job like I just want to make what I want to make this week, and this is what I want to make. And I mm. sort of somehow either convinced them that it was a great idea than to have kazoo's and guitars rather than something else on their show because I just wanted to do that, or I was just had a kazoo lying around and didn't know how to do what I actually was meant to do. Um, like, like a lot of uh, composers we've had on this stage, you've done games. You've done a game yeah. uh, called Little Big World. Little Big Planet. Planet. So look at that. Game was just... Oh, <laughs> I did. I must have written down. Anyway, um, how did you get that job? How did you get into doing the game? Games was... Uh, I used to write a lot about games, and I tested games. I was very into video games. For a guy called Peter Molyneux, who if anyone's into games might know who he is. He invented a game called Populous... I did some work experience for them when I was like 15, designing levels for Populous 2. Then sort of went into doing TV music, but I was still writing about video games, and then I bumped into him in a toilet in Spain uh, in, uh, <laughs> at an event for Xbox. And uh, it was very weird. And he was like, hey, do you remember me? Uh, as we were at the Urano. Uh, I used to do some work experience for you. And he was like, yeah, I do remember you. <laughs> and I'd just done the Edwardian Country House, and he was like, oh, I'd love to hear what you're doing now. Send him some music. He's like, we've got this game coming up called The Movies. I want you to come in and meet us about it. I was like, okay, great. And they had this game, which is a very early sort of machinima. Was it machinima? Where you create kind of your own videos of things. And... Uh, they needed music that represented the last 100 years of film music for the game. Is that all? Yeah, and I think the guy who, who did it didn't want to do it because it was like it was the, like the most insane workload job of all time. But I was like, yeah, cool, I can do that. In that kind of, yeah, sure, I'll give that a go. And then what the hell have I just agreed <laughs> to do? And then again, sort of busked it and just frantically tried to learn everything about film music through doing this game. Um, and through that, I met a great guy called Rex Crown, who was also here somewhere. Um, and we became friends, and then he went to start work on this new game called Little Big Planet, and that's how I got brought onto that. So you, you, you knew the game world kind of from the inside out, but so what you already knew presumably what the challenges are as a composer for writing music for game. Yeah, I'm probably a pretty crappy person to talk about in terms of video games because I have never. I think scoring video games is a real art. That's very different, can be very different to film music, especially if you're writing very interactive stuff. I've done a bit, but not really that much. And um, I guess it all just comes down to storytelling again, like that is just a piece of storytelling and creating sonic worlds. So the music we did for the game, there was me, some guy called Kenny, and a guy called Matt. It was a very big part of the look and feel of Little Big Planet, which was this very colourful, whimsical, stickery cartoon world. And you know, I was just kind of trying to absorb those ideas. But I'm doing a new game with Rex called Nights and Bikes, which he's kickstarting at the moment, and that's um, you know, it's just it's just really fun, just working in different worlds. Is it 
the game world is extraordinary for music right now. This I mean, off, Abbey Road is full of orchestras recording full. Yeah, full really. Power I think orchestral music for I, games. I think the best game music is actually stuff that doesn't try and ape. I think the one problem with games is I think there's loads of people trying to ape film scores rather than be game scores, and. I think some of my favourite game scores, things like Heavy Rain or Red Dead Redemption, which is kind of aping films, but it's got it's got a kind of its own integrity and its own belief in what it is, rather than trying to pretend to be films. I think once games as an industry gets more into a self belief in their own in what they do as an art form, I think it will be really good. But their budgets are so strong often, we certainly with the bigger titles, aren't they? They can afford to put an orchestra. Yeah, there is a thing of like this, like the more money you have, like the more money you spend, the better it's going to be. But even, I don't think that's true. I think there's this real, I think you can make something great on nothing and um, you don't need to go to, I mean, I go to Abbey Road a lot and spend a fortune, but at the same time you can do really interesting stuff without going there in your flat or on your, I mean, I've just done this film King Arthur and the very first noise you hear in the film, this huge trumpet, that sound that is in like a $100, $200 million movie is taken from a video I recorded on my iPhone in someone's toilet. Um, in uh, Spend a lot of time in... In toilets, toilets. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a tiny flat in uh, Fitzrovia. I went around this guy who um, collects weird uh, like medieval horns and I, I was making videos for my own notes about what they sounded like. And they had this one that was so long, sounds <laughs> even more dubious, that the only, way we could, the only way we could record it was he had a small living room. We had to like put it into the, the bathroom. And I just, it's just me holding my phone recording it. And it was scraping on this tiled floor, and it just made this really weird noise while he played it. And we tried to re-record it at Abbey Road, like I said, like a million mics. And the thing that's in the film that sounds really cool is just him in the toilet blowing it off an iPhone video not even an iPhone recording and so I think there's a thing where the more you can absorb sound from any place and not be worried about it being the highest quality and that's one of the things I think I've always tried to get into is the vibe of something and I mean you can do amazing things the people like places like Abbey Road have the most amazing crew you can create stuff that you could never create anywhere else and it's fantastic but it's still just a tool, and you can still create amazing stuff on your phone these days. You know, you can create music any any way. And the more you do something that's unusual, the more it's going to, I think, connect with people because this can be something they haven't heard before. I know that um, Simon Fisher Turner, for example, wrote a lot of music with for um, Derek Jarman. Um, he go, always takes a tape recorder or a, you know, a digital recorder everywhere yeah. with him because there might be a sound. Yeah, no, I've, actually, been, I've been on a walk with him and he just kept banging things the whole time. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well, um, before we start talking about the movies, there's another television series I'd like to mention, which is um, Desperate Romantics, which is a rather um, wonderful drama, comedy, action, oh, there's all sorts of things. It was all about the pre-Raphaelite uh, brotherhood of painters, wasn't it? Uh, Rossetti, Hogan Hunt, and Millet. And this rather—it was a modern take on it, wasn't it? So it was a—it's a—it was—it was set and costumed and designed in in that period. Yeah. But it had a very modern take to it. Perhaps you could just sort of tell us a little bit. I, about I that. mean, it's this kind of period drama, and they felt sort of like they sort of felt sort of quite punk, quite punky. Yes. 
sort of very, they had like loads of swagger. They basically were making loads of money, hanging around like rock stars, banging girls, yeah. and knocking out paintings. And the whole vibe of the thing was this like swaggery rock star kind of idea. So I was like, well, let's just score it like it was, they were a rock band. So I tried to take the period drama idea and then sort of mash it together with like more, like sort of glam rock kind of T-Rex kind of vibe. And I just, it's one of those things, I love doing this score, it's one of my favourite things I've done. It, it was, and we got, this is one of these things where we did the whole thing in the room at the same time. So everyone is playing at the same time. It's one of my first things at Abbey Road, and we just got drummer, bassist, guitarist, orchestra. And now I have, I, I've got so used to like stemming everything a million different ways because of Hollywood film nonsense. So you know you do everything separately. Yeah. Whereas this, it was like you've got to get this done this week, the next episode this week, next episode this week. And so it's just this crazy, insane rush to do this this show, and it was really, really good fun. And I, I could have kept doing this music for ages because it's kind of really me because it's just slightly over the top. <laughs> bit stupid um, and probably has got too many notes in a, in a way that's not that cool but how easy or difficult do you find title music to do where you have to make something distinctive in such a short amount of time I really like I, titles is probably one of my favourite things to do because I love trying to like, actually writing very short pieces of music that are quite catchy I'm alright at writing really long pieces I'm a, not don't tell anyone I'm not so good at but um it's just I, I just love trying to come up with a sound like something that grabs you straight away and a kind of identity that you immediately know what the show is so I think a great title sequence is as soon as you hear the noise or a sound you know exactly what the show is yeah. and hopefully that encapsulates the idea of the show do you like the I, it, it's kind of relevant to for uh, in fact you were just mentioning about King Arthur and we'll talk about that a little bit later but it's the similar kind of idea of this sort of very modern take on a period setting. It seems to me suits you down to the ground. It's only because I, I, I sort of trying to do something that feels different. Sometimes just because there's a lot of people who've written really great classical music or orchestral stuff, and I'm not going to better them. So I'll just try and mash two things together that don't really fit that people haven't done before. Mm-hmm. And that way I can do that better because no one's done it before. And if everyone did it my stuff would sound rubbish but it's just that no one's mashed those things together so I'm like the first guy there you know before everyone else turns up but I always find that it's an interesting way because then you find things with different types of music you know if you've got like sort of more beat based groove you know what kind of classical instruments work well with that which ones sound ludicrous and you start to learn about instrumentation in a different way and you're also trying something new for the first time you don't know what works and what doesn't which is always exciting because you're not just falling back on what you think you know it's like I love it when rock bands do film scores because they often don't know how to do things that you know as a film composer you just build up oh yeah do that like this and that will work yeah. and so sometimes they're awful but then there'll be moments as well which are completely brilliant because they've found a way of doing something that you would never think of because they don't necessarily know how to do it. And I think the less you know how to do what you're doing, the more interesting results can be, I think. No, no, it makes perfect sense. Let's, let's move to movies then. Your first big movie was uh, The Awakening, a British horror movie yeah. directed by Nick Murphy, who's here. Yeah. Um, how did that develop? You worked with, with Nick on television. Yeah, I worked with Nick on TV, and we did some really good TV um, dramas, 
before this, um, and he got to do a film. And I always say, like, doing, getting into film is, it's like a party that you're not really invited to. <laughs> and as a composer, you're not really let in. They're just like, no, 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 you can't come in here, mate. Your name's not on the door. And then the director gets invited to this party, and the uh, the bouncer on the door says to him. Uh, who's that with you, i.e. me? And the director can either go, oh, that's Dan, it's fine, he's coming in with me. Oh, he's with you, fine. Or he goes, oh, I don't know, actually, listen, um, yeah, next time. And so there's a real thing where the director takes you in to do your first film, it's really important because they're giving you, they're putting a lot on the line for you. And I know Nick had a lot of other composers, like really big names he could have worked with, but he had a lot of faith in me because we'd built... Uh, rapport just working year for, for, for years on TV so we both got to know each other he's a fantastic director with like probably one of the best directors I've worked with in terms of understanding how music can what music can bring to a film um, so we've developed that over years and years and you know I always like to think I'd done music that he felt was good enough that if he was doing a film he'd want to take me with him and he did and this was like my first film and I, you know I'm really really love this film. It's a very common story that we hear um, in these conversations. Uh, I think a lot of composers who want to make it think that they can just sort of parachute in to a big movie without having had necessarily any of the previous collaborations or built up the relationships with the filmmakers themselves. It's often the filmmakers themselves that the, the, a lot of young composers have sort of forgotten about. They're dealing with their own music but they're not mixing with the right people within the industry in order to develop those relationships and get those jobs. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I've been, I've, you know, I've been very lucky, but also I think there's this thing where hopefully the filmmakers I work with know that I really care about what I'm doing and they know I wanted to make, make it really good. And it's about more than a job. It's sort of like your whole passion of what you're doing. And you want them to think you're going to give the film everything. You know, it's not a job. It's like, I want to make this the best film possibly be. So The Awakening is a, it's a horror movie, essentially. Yeah, it's more of a period, yes, period, <clears throat> sort of, it's, a, it's a mix between sort of period film and sort of horror. But I, I always think horror is a kind of gift for a composer, really, because the palette immediately expands with what you can do in it. Is that... Yeah, I don't know, I, I sort of, like, it was interesting doing a horror. I don't necessarily super love doing horror. Um, but this was, I mean, this was great because Nick wanted to introduce a lot more of a lyrical side to it, which took, I think, the film into a, a more interesting direction. So there was a big, we wrote this big operatic piece for the end, you know, with full choir, yeah. and, and we were seeding that through the film. So that was a really fascinating thing where you're building a, a sound world and a score that is moving to a very grand piece of music, which is things we'd done before in previous projects with Nick where we'd have a, a kind of sequence normally in the last third of the film that would be, here is the music sequence. But it, by your standards, it's actually a fairly conventional sort of instrumentation setup for this, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was like... I'm, I mean, I've kind of got known for doing weird instrumentation setups, but I, you know, I still like writing orchestral music. And, and even with this, a lot of the, there's a lot of weird sound design that was made with recorders and swanny whistles that are out of tune. Um, but I think you've also got to go with what the film needs, and this sort of environment musically felt totally right for this film. What were the 
conversations that you had with, with Nick about that kind of scene and that use of the orchestra like that? We worked very closely at trying to work out a... There's like a melodic idea. I'll just go to the piano for two seconds. There's this, there's this melodic idea in the film that went... very simple idea and we'd weave that through the film so that was kind of in some ways what we'd have the most discussions about and what we would seed through the movie for her character and then you have scenes like that which are sort of ones where you're sort of doing more work as a composer in terms of trying to hit things build up tension and I think that's the interesting thing about horror music is there's a lot of work you have to do um, of creating this sort of tension over a scene and pulling it away and bringing it back, which is the hardest thing sometimes, is how you pull things away, how you build to things, how you, you stop them, how you climax them. And, you know, if you do the same trick over and over again, it becomes very boring. So you have to find all these different devices in a horror film to try and keep the score feeling fresh all the way through the movie, um, but still try and keep a continuity, which we do through using... Recorders, we use a lot of recorders on that score. Mm. Weird sound design I do that I sort of create and then the, the more kind of traditional orchestral elements. You have worked with a lot of very well-known directors um, since and with someone like Ridley Scott, for example. Uh, what's he ever done? Well, um, yeah. On The, the Counsellor? Yeah, because he saw that movie, basically. Right. That's what I was going to ask you. Was that? Yeah, so he... he he saw that movie and came in to the edit of this film he was doing one day and said, I've just seen this great movie called The Awakening. And I was lucky enough to work with his editor on a very short film um, a year ago, before then. And he was like, well, I know the guy who did the music to that. And so I got brought in to meet Ridley Scott and he, he super loved The Awakening. He was like, it's a great, great movie. Um, I was like... Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I just got incredibly lucky with a whole load of things just aligning at the same time. He was in England doing a film. He needed a new composer. Uh, he really liked The Awakening. Uh, I knew the editor. It's just one of these kind of like all these planets aligning in one kind of weird lucky moment. And I just got thrown a ball and had to run with it incredibly fast. And then that was my first... Hollywood, Hollywood film and then once you've got a kind of film with Ridley Scott done everyone's a bit like oh you must know what you're doing and I'm like not really and that's still <laughs> the same guy I was like six months before but because you've got that stamp suddenly people take you a bit more seriously how was it working with Ridley Scott because he's I mean if you look at his movies of the last 40 years he's not known for always having the best relationship with his composers is, let's put it that way. Yeah, it's weird. I got on with him really, really well. Like, there's always scary stories about him. And he was so nice. I mean, he was like, he would give me a lot of freedom to sort of do what I wanted to do, would always push me to make it weirder, which I always like in a director rather than make it conventional. Um, we only really had, he would allow me to have arguments with him and tell him I didn't agree with him. 
which was really cool because you're like, oh my god, it's Ridley Scott. I don't, you know, I don't want to say you know, anything. And he would let you have your own opinion. He doesn't like yes men. He, you know, he does like yes men, but he doesn't really like yes men. It's like once you're in, he's going to protect you, and he wants you to do what you think is best. Um, so you know, we'd have discussions. You know, we'd have whole arguments over a scene. I'd be like, I think you're wrong. He's like, well, he'd say, well, it's funny. I had this thing with Jerry Goldsmith on Alien once yeah. and I was like and I knew the story because I'd done my research and I was like okay shit you win <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith had written this opening to Alien and I watched a video because I tried to do a lot of research on what Ridley was like once I got the job and this was like 30 years later and Jerry Goldsmith was still really pissed off like really pissed off yeah. uh, about the opening to Alien which is one of the best openings of any film and He'd written something else for the opening of Alien, which is not as good, which is this really bombastic kind of big da-da-da-da space. And Ridley threw it out and put this other thing on. He said, I wrote in like five minutes. And he's still angry about it. And I'm like, such a great piece of music. Ridley, in this case, wins. He's right. Um, So I was just like, oh, you don't have to tell me the story. I know what it is. And okay, we'll do what you want to do. But that's the one piece of music. I think it was, was it it not the ending? It was Howard Hanson's symphony or something that he put in instead of Jerry's music. I think it was the ending, was it? Because the, the opening is very quiet. No, the, the opening has yeah. a bigger... I'm so pretty sure the opening has a big... Oh. Anyway, so... It's one of the great scores, but it, yeah. But they did properly fall out. But it, it, that's not the only composer he's fallen out with over the years. So, I, anyway, you did your research. So. Yeah, but I thought, you know, he was... He, you know, I, I have nothing but nice words to say about him. He's a very nice uh, collaborator and but, a but, fun guy. But here's the thing, that the movie had a, a very extreme reaction from lots of people, the counsellor, didn't it? How, when, if, way of putting it. Yeah, but if, if, if a film goes that way, how does that make you feel when you've put so much work into it? I don't care. Like, most of the things I do, generally, between you and me, don't do that well. It's like... But I, you really don't care? I, all I care about is how good is the work I've done in the film. Am I pleased with what I've done? Am I pleased with what I've... You know, obviously you'd like everything you do to be a big hit and everyone to love it, but I would rather have a film that no one sees or no one likes that I'm really proud of than a massive hit where I think the score's a bit crap or sounds like another score or everything else. And, you know, Counselor's a really important film for me. I, really, I personally really love it. It's got really... Like, not a lot of people love it, but it's got really weird hardcore fans. Uh, like, Gilmero Del Toro watches it every week. I'm not joking, he watches it every week, and if you look at his Twitter feed, he will bang on about it a lot. Um, and Ridley had another film that no one liked when it came out, which is obviously Blade Runner. Yeah. But I'm, Blade Runner probably beats this one. But I, you know, it's every, every job you do is like a sort of, I will say like a child or something, but you have a kind of relationship with all your scores, um, and, you know, I sort of care about them all. You don't care because that one didn't get top marks at school, unless you're the kind of person who only cares about people getting top marks at school. Okay, so we, we mentioned Jerry Goldsmith. That kind of brings us on to The Man from Uncle. Oh, yeah. Because, obviously, with the original series, the television series, Jerry Goldsmith wrote the theme tune to that. Um, and you come to the movie version. Yeah. Directed by Guy Ritchie. Yeah. How did you get that job? Uh, I had some meetings in LA after uh, doing Ridley's film and you go to these meetings and you sort of meet lots of people from studios tell you how awesome everything is and you kind of go everything's awesome yeah. and give them two thumbs up for like half, half an hour in a room and then you kind of leave and go what was that about 
Um, but I had a meeting at Warner Brothers, and they were doing they were doing this film. So they were like, can you put a showreel together? So I put the showreel together, and I remember thinking, this is not even a very good showreel. <clears throat> like, this had stuff I'd done for Channel 5 on it. Um, and, um, <laughs> but I kind of sent it off in a kind of like, oh, he, you know. And Guy heard it, and he said it was the only showreel he'd heard that didn't sound exactly the same as everyone else. He said he'd heard every showreel in Hollywood, and they all sounded the same. And yours was the only one that sounded different. And I was going to go... Because oh, that's good. I wasn't thinking it was even that good show wheel. <laughs> so I had a meeting with him, which is very bizarre. Um, but he seemed seemed to, you know, I passed the Guy Ritchie test, whatever the Guy Ritchie test is. Yeah, that was my next question. Um, and then I was thrown into doing uh, the Man from Uncle, which is a like unbelievably intense, um, crazy experience. Did you know the? TV series and the music? Yeah, I knew the TV series not passively. I knew it a bit. Very familiar with parts of the music. Um, and, but also that whole genre of that time was yeah. like a super big love of mine musically. I loved all like early Leno Schifrin, Edwin Astley, who did a lot of the English stuff, Roy Budd, all these kind of composers. Of, it's a sort of sound, 60s spy music I really, really love. Um, and so it was really good fun to try and re-embrace that. It's interesting that, uh, again, that the film, a lot of people didn't like the film, a lot of people liked the film, but you came out of that film extremely well across the board, I think. And I think it's because you did have this uh, sort of foot in the, in the original kind of feel of the, of the series that people really responded to, because there were a lot of fans, of course, of this series, a lot of yeah. really keen fans. I think that's what, perhaps what they responded to. I think also with Guy's films, they're so driven by music to an like insane degree, which as a composer is very challenging because you're really making the film roll the way it rolls, and there's a lot more pressure on as a result. Um, but then it's also great because you basically get two hours to like make insane, weird music uh, that's really quite good fun. Like Guy really pushes music like to the forefront of sequences and builds whole sequences around the music. So that side of it is really exciting. And so on that film, I basically kind of get to show off for like two hours, <laughs> which is, um, was, you know, was really good fun. And recording that score was probably the most fun I've ever had recording. So he pushes the, the music and the role of it, but does he push you as well? Does he make you work? Yeah, like yeah, he definitely pushes me. Like, uh, <laughs> in all kinds of directions. Yeah, working for Guy is uh, a pretty unique experience, shall we say. Are you going to expand on that a little bit? I think, you know, <laughs> work out. It's, uh, it, you know, he's, the thing that is great about Guy is he doesn't like stuff that sounds like other films. So he really, really wants stuff that sounds completely different. Um, and as a composer, that is very exciting because, you know, like the new film we've got, we are doing some really bizarre stuff. For a Hollywood film, it's very exciting. We shall come to that. I mean, any, anyone who follows you on Twitter or social media will see every now and then when you're in the studio, you're, you're posting pictures of you basically having fun creating sounds out of stuff. Like, I mean, you've said it a lot tonight, just things that have to be around and everything. But you do love that, don't you? Yeah, I mean, we get to do, like, the way I've been doing scores recently, if I can, is trying to build in an element of experimentation at the very last step where you can... I try and do experimentation very early on, then we get locked to picture and we get very caught up in that. 
and then we fine-tune. And then when we go to record, I try and find a way that we've still got some space to mess around and do something that you wouldn't think of. You know, even in this last film, there was a bit where one of the guitarists was tuning up his guitar, and I was like, what, what, what's that sound? And he was like, it's my tuning peg. It's really creaky. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Don't tune up anymore. And I'd be like, right, let's go to 2M12 or whatever. Let's go to this track, play it for bar four. I want you to do the beat of this track on the tuning peg. And it's all through this, this track now. It's got this really cool, weird, creaky sound. And it's just one of those things you hear it, and you'll be like, that sort of feels different. And Guy really responded to that and really likes that kind of idea. So it's actually... You know, even though the, the jobs with him are very challenging, you get to that point, it's great because he likes stuff that is really odd. But to build that time into your studio time, it, again, it's quite unusual because especially these days with studios and musicians, it's very expensive to do that, especially in places like Abbey Road that so often you have to be so absolutely prepared before you go in, record the music within a particular period of time and then... Yeah, but I'll do things where it won't be, you know, like if you're spending, if you've got like 70 musicians, that's going to cost a fortune. Whereas if you've got seven, you could probably do a few more sessions with them. So I will do, I mean, it all depends on the score, but I will try and work, you know, work things out. So budgetary, I have some space to do that. And I'm very conscious of when I'm making, running it. Like if you ever do a big recording session, there's so much work involved in running the budget. Like not necessarily running the budget, but working out how can I make this work without spending loads of money and pissing everyone off because you want you want to get the best you can but at the same time you want to like have that space and I, I don't like waste in my sessions I always try and get as much as everyone who works with me on my sessions and hates me for it like because I always push things as far as they'll go in terms of what we can get out of the session and like be 30 seconds left before we go and I'll be like right we can do this queue and I was like no you can't I'm like yes we can go boom and we'll somehow just just about squeeze it in and the last three minutes of a session with me are like unbelievably tense and <laughs> like nail biting because there'll always be one thing I haven't done and I'm just trying to get in but you do that and then that gives you the space to mess around with different ideas and that's kind of where the magic comes from I think because especially the way we work now as composers it's so much based on these demos and just recreating the same thing again you're not having that moment of magic and inspiration when anyone plays something you react to it you're just saying I want to create a copy of what I've done before whereas you sort of want to go here's the idea of what we're doing how can we make that better and I think when you have a bit of time and space to mess around and it's all through a film like I'll come in early in fact all the way back to the docks when I started off I would get involved right at the beginning so we could mess around and experiment and make weird things and have space for mistakes and those things the more odd you know when you write odd stuff sometimes that gets in the film it's great because it takes you in a whole different direction whereas if you come in right at the end and you know exactly what you're going to do it's always going to be safe um, the next film we're going to talk about is Steve Jobs that yeah. was also last year it was a good year for you yeah. uh, with big movies uh, Man from Uncle as well now Steve Jobs is a very unusually constructed film in a sense isn't it because it's it's three big scenes essentially yeah. isn't it across the period of the film directed by Danny Boyle yeah. another another director who's not always been known for his dedication to the same Danny's composer. great I mean he's he, that guy <laughs> makes um, like Danny's makes amazing notes on music and has mm. 
fantastic knowledge of an enthusiasm for, for all types of music. Okay, so with, this, so with this film then, we have three acts, three different periods, uh, key moments in, in Apple. Yeah. With launch, uh, each one is at a launch, isn't it? Yeah. A different period. Um, so what were your, what were your conversations? Because it's, it's a very talky film, it's Aaron Sorkin screenplay. Where do you fit into all of that? I originally thought this is going like, to be easy, but I thought there's so much talking, I'm not going to have to do anything. <laughs> and then it turned out that actually, you know, music became a big part of the film and they were doing the film in these three different acts which was shot three different film stocks three different locations and they were it's pretty clear three act structure and very early on with Danny we said let's you know I came on right at the beginning before they started shooting let's try and write three different scores and we didn't know if that would work but we're like let's just try that out early on and give it a go and that's how I would start writing things they'd get fed into the edit and then it would start building these sequences around, you know, throw, throw an idea in. You know, Danny would respond to some things really well, other things he'd be like, don't like that. And you'd start to get an idea of what he liked, and you would start to get it into the, the sort of under the skin of the film, rather than having them put temp music in. So that way you can write stuff that's a lot more original. And I always had the idea, the first act was going to be 1984, and was going to be 1984 technology, to yeah. so try to write it all on, like, synthesizers MIDI stuff of the time second act is set in the San Francisco Opera House so that I wanted to write like an opera and write all orchestral slightly kind of theatrical and we kind of we've actually wrote an opera with lyrics in Italian which aren't in the scene we're going to see which comes in a later scene which was just like okay well we've got got them singing about something let's get them singing about computers in Italian (laughs) Um, and then the third act was sort of digital with the IMAX so I was trying to write a very digital score and I quite like having these boundaries or ideas so I can I've got a place to start because if someone just says write music it's it's like where do you go so it's trying to find a a a sort of limitation or box that you can start working your way out of I I always just think about if you sit in a cinema I want to be surprised. I want to not not know what's going to happen. And like my favorite, you know, Morricone is like one of my favorite composers. And the way he would do that with music, sometimes you're like, what the, is that? Yeah. And I think there's so much, you know, even going back to that clip with the 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 church. Mm. That's you know, all that thing comes from this learning everything in TV, learning how to do all these kind of weird ideas, and getting the confidence to kind of go, yeah, let's just try something that you wouldn't expect. Because previously, Aaron Sorkin stuff was always this very fast, pulsy. It's just got that pulse of the speed of the dialogue, and it's trying to find how do we keep that energy and the concentration you need to take that in, but give it a more musical identity and one you wouldn't necessarily expect. And I tried a lot of ideas early on in this film, which didn't work. I tried my first idea was trying to do these Steve Reich guitars that were like going in and out of like electric counterpoint where all the guitars go in and out of time. I want to try and do something like that, but then it quickly, I quickly realised it wasn't working. I love just trying to throw ideas together quickly and see how they, they work. And you said Danny Boyle gives lots of notes. Yeah, he writes great notes. He writes, yeah, yeah. And he's also... He's also but what very, does he say? What does he say in the notes? Oh, he gets really excited by things or he's very polite. He will never... Which is sometimes he kind of wish he'd give you a bit more crap because he won't say... He'll just say it's not for me. Yeah. 
which is, you know, some directors will say something very different, not for me. <laughs> so he's a very warm uh, collaborator. And, you know, he's still a director who wants to get what they want. And towards the end of the film, it, we have this massive scene in the middle, this, like, this nine-minute sequence, and that was so tough. Like, 90% of this film was a complete breeze, and then there was this bit in the middle that was just so hard. Is that the big scene where you're flipping backwards and forwards between times? Yeah, and it's trying to write this piece of music that has musical integrity, which is the hardest thing. Even with The Man From U.N.C.L.E., the hardest thing with that is you're writing a groove-based track. So you kind of have to hit certain points for it not to feel weird. And you have to find out ways of, how do I keep hitting these points on the beat when things aren't necessarily hitting on the beat? And find all clever ways of doing that. And it's and that's actually really tough to make. it's very tough to make something appear very simple and it was the same with the middle scene of this it was trying to write this piece that would go on for like eight minutes you don't get bored of the piece hopefully it's relentless it never stops I mean it never stops the piece and originally I had it so it stopped more but we found it didn't push you through the scene as much and yet still have musical integrity whereas I think a lot of action music you can jump from 4-4 four, four to 7-8 and do some tempo. And it works because you're reacting to the picture, whereas this was like writing action music for a dialogue scene. And it was like an eight-minute action sequence, but it had to feel like a piece of modern opera. And it was, yeah, it was tough. But we kind of got there in the end, so that was good because it got very close to the wire on that one. Do you, do you ever go and see your own movies, go to the cinema and watch them? Yeah, I normally, when, when, I, when a movie comes out, I normally do a thing where I normally try and get any of my mates who can be bothered to go to the cinema, and we'll all go and see it on the first night at a, a normal cinema. And that's actually my favourite experience of doing movies. I hate premieres. Premieres are horrible. Um, well, you'd, you'd blend into the carpet. Yeah, I disappear. Um, everyone thinks premieres these great things. They're not. They're really not. And seeing a film in a cinema with people who have paid to see it um, and some people you know uh, is, is for me the, kind of the most exciting thing because you're kind of experiencing it how everyone's been experiencing it. My favourite thing about going to premieres is at the end when like the 75th person on the list of uh, special effects somebody sh- cheers really loudly. Yeah, that would actually be, That's their mother yeah, cheering. Yeah, that would be you know, people I know. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we talk about your next... Oh, you mentioned it already, but before we talk about the next uh, Guy Ritchie, has anyone got any questions for Daniel you'd like to uh, ask? Yes, straight in. Yeah, a question about Man from Uncle. You said some of the, the cues you were doing after a dozen versions of. I was just interested in how different yeah I mean that is the, tr- the hardest thing I'd say with modern music is a demo and how do you create a demo that works through the whole process yet at the same time um feels original. So for that, I found this great flute player called Dave Heath, who's an amazing flute player, and I would just get him round, and I would sort of ask him to do some things, and he'd, he'd show me all these kind of weird stuff he could do, these crazy arpeggios that go... But I was like, I don't know how I'm going to use that. And he started doing this breathe, like tongue breathing stuff, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. Okay, 
play that again. I was like, okay, what if you play this? And I'd play something and he'd play it. And I'd be like, okay, let's record that. And I'd start getting to record things. Um, and then I would slowly build that into track and then simplify it. And it was, I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievably sellotape the way I, I still approach a lot of movies where I don't really know what I'm doing and it's kind of cobbling together anything I can get, you know, from like something off my iPhone, a noise on my iPhone, to um, a sample I've made, to like a, you know, a nice sample set of some strings or something. And I still don't have a very clever technique for any score I do, and it always changes from score to score. And, you know, so for the drums on that, for instance, I would program the drums a lot to give an idea, but then I would make sure that there was, when we went to record them, I could do more with that, rather than say the drummer just copy what I programmed, because it's going to be boring. It's like, okay, we need some energy here, can you rush the hi-hats here, and we'll just give you a slightly different hi-hat pattern. Sometimes I will write out very intricate patterns, please play that exactly. Other times it'll be like, that's the idea, let's make it better. Um, you know, bass lines. This bass line's got to be exactly the same, but maybe here, here, and here on these fields just give us something that just gives us a bit more human feel to it. And it's, it's weird because I don't have a clever system for doing any score I do. And that piece in Steve Jobs worked because I could probably mock it up to a level that felt good, whereas there's other ideas I had that didn't necessarily work because it was very hard to get them through the mock-up process. Anybody else? Yeah, right there. Really. Hi, Daniel. Um, I've heard on numerous times now that you're an absolute beast when it comes to networking. Um, I was just wondering uh, what advice you could offer to people looking to craft their own opportunities. Um, I don't know. I used to be quite good. I'm still not anymore. I'm kind of like reclusive. Um, <laughs> I, when I started out, I would just be like, just... If you get your music to as many people in a way that's as least annoying as possible, which wasn't always that good at. Um, but I think, I think people are going to want to work with you if you do good work and if you have an energy and enthusiasm for what you do. And I think that first break into an industry is really hard and there's no magic. Every single composer here will have a different story about how they got their first break. But I think the thing you've always got to know is when you get that break, are you ready to, you know, when I got my first film break, I'd luckily done tons of TV, and so had learned that. And then when I got my first Hollywood thing, I'd done enough TV and a bit of film that I'd already learned pitfalls of pissing people off, or, you know, my attitude was different now than it was when my face started off, when I probably thought I was absolutely brilliant, and now I'm kind of like, what the hell am I doing here? Um, and... You learn how to deal with people, how to manage the way you create music, your techniques. And so I think, as a sort of not very good answer to this, I don't know, I would just say, just keep doing good work and try to let everyone know what you're doing, but in a way that's as least as annoying as possible. In a kind of fun way. You know, I don't care if you don't like it, I'm doing it anyway. Isn't one of the key things that you said is what Guy Ritchie said, which is that he was attracted to your work because it didn't sound like everybody else. It seems to me that so many people, so many wannabe composers are trying just to be like another composer, other composer yeah, it's like, and sound like that because they think that's what it needs to sound yeah, like. Yeah, if you sound like Hans Zimmer, and a director can hire Hans Zimmer, which these days it seems they can, because yeah. he seems to set up a company that lots of people can hire him or his various <laughs> minions for anything, it seems, then... 
they're going to hire Hans Zimmer. But if you don't sound like Hans Zimmer and you sound completely different, you sound like yourself, they're going to hire you. Yeah. The more original voices there are, the harder it is for me to get work. So actually just try and... Uh, oh, yeah, there is that. Yeah. But, Stop giving advice to other companies. Uh, no, I would say, it's, and it's very easy to say, create your own voice, but it's actually quite hard to do. And I'm still trying to work out what mine is in a way. But anything that's different, people will latch on to. This is Daniel's next project with uh, Guy Ritchie, and it's called King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. It doesn't need much of an introduction, it has to be said. It's rather, I, also rather appropriate just to explain what that extraordinary sound was, that the descending kind of bass note that's in there, exactly. Because I think it, it perfectly sums up the creativity that you that you've displayed tonight with all the sounds and all the interests that you have with all the instruments and creating all these sounds. What, what was that? So that is a hurdy-gurdy that I borrowed off one of my sister's boyfriend's dad that is really awful. Like, it's not totally out of tune. It's a, it's a bad... It's not a very well-made hurdy-gurdy, and it's impossible to tune because it's got two strings on hurdy-gurdy where you pull them. And normally you can take one off, and you can go, right, tune that to D, put it back on, tune that one to D, and you get a nice sound. But this one, you can't take them off, so you basically have no idea what you're tuning to. And we kept trying to tune it, and it just sounded horrible. And then I was suddenly like, hang on, it sounds really, really cool. <laughs> and so I sampled it all up and did some sort of clever little programming tricks on it. And that's kind of that, what that sound comes from. Um, and this score has got really, it's got a lot of me screaming. It's a lot of me screaming in the score, which I thought we were going to replace. But it's now <laughs> in the score because they like my scream. Okay. And, uh, and I was doing that in my flat and having to phone up my neighbours and say, listen, the next half an hour you're going to hear some weird stuff possibly through the floorboards. Don't worry. Um, it's, it's got a lot of me breathing heavily. It's, it's pretty interesting for... I mean, for that kind of film, it's quite nuts in places. So I'm kind of very excited about it as well. And there's stuff... You know, again, there's stuff that I have recorded in my flat that's just me breathing into a microphone with some beats underneath it. And there's stuff with, like, huge 70-piece orchestras and they both have their own power, and it's just trying to find out which one works best for the, the scenes. I'm looking forward to it very much. It's been great, been great fun tonight, Dan. Thank you so much right. for joining us.